So would you please read with me? I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, the first 12 verses. It begins actually in, in verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, everyone went to his own house. I'll explain that in a minute. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such a person should be stoned. What do you say? They said, uh, this they said to him, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and, no one, uh, but, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is God's word. Uh, you know, one of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is one of the ones we read in our reading this morning. It's actually a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. That was the first reading. And that is a prophecy which the New Testament attributes to Jesus. It says that this was actually speaking hundreds of years before Jesus was born about who Jesus would be, about what kind of person he would be and the kind of things that he would do. And this is what it says. This is found in Matthew's gospel, but it's quoting from Isaiah 42. It says this, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now what does this mean? I want you to notice two things. Notice it talks about justice, right? It talks about justice that, uh, you know, he will proclaim justice and he will bring justice to victory. He will be a champion of justice. But notice this other thing. It also talks about compassion, right? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, right? It says justice and compassion. Both of these qualities, these characteristics will be embodied in this person. Who? In the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Now, now notice, again, it talks about justice and compassion. He will proclaim justice. He'll bring it to victory. Yet a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. This Messiah, Jesus, he will bring justice. But yet, that bruised heart, that broken person, that somebody who's just barely hanging on, right? They're hanging on by threads, right? They're about to burn out that flickering soul which is about ready to go out in his hands it will not be harmed but it will be healed 
So here in this encounter with Jesus that we see here in John chapter 8, that is exactly what is going on. And this is what's amazing. Jesus shows us one who is both fully compassionate and yet fully just at the same time without compromise. Now to give you some context to this story, because it does start off kind of strange, uh, at the beginning it just says everybody went home. Where are they going home from? To give you some context, in John chapter 7, we read how Jesus had come up to Jerusalem along with the majority of Jews at this time for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this was one of the great feasts, the great festivals in the Jewish calendar every year. Uh, you know, it's the one that I think that it would be the most fun because it was, you know, you come with your whole family, you go to Jerusalem and you live in a tent for a week. And this was a, a remembrance of how their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years but God had always provided for them and taken care of them so people from all over Israel would come they would come to Jerusalem they would live in tents and during this festival right the city was jam-packed full of people now here in chapter 8 verse 1 it says that the festival has just ended and everybody's going home right but Jesus rather than going home he decides he's going to hang out in Jerusalem a little bit longer so after the festival is over instead of going home Jesus goes back up on the Mount of Olives which is a hill there in the city of Jerusalem it's kind of opposite the Temple Mount you know you get a great view of the the old city there from the Mount of Olives and uh, he goes up there now this is a place where Jesus would often go he frequently went there to seek out the Father to spend time in solitude and in prayer so he goes there and he spends the night up there. And early the next morning, as the sun is coming up, in other words, at dawn, Jesus goes to the temple. He walks across the valley, up the hill, into the temple mount. And he's there in the temple courts and he is just there to meet anyone who's interested to talk to them. And a, and a crowd gathers and Jesus starts teaching them. And while he's teaching them, this group of scribes and Pharisees they you know come into his group there this circle that he's got around him and they drag with them this woman into the middle of the crowd and they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery we caught her and they say the law of Moses says that she should be stoned to death she should be executed what do you say Jesus what should we do it says in verse 6 it says that they did this in order to trap him they did it in order to test him in other words they are trying to discredit Jesus right there in front of all these people out in the open they want to discredit him now let me paint this picture for you a little bit more so you can you can fully grasp what's going on in this situation in verses 3 and verse 4 we read two times that this woman was caught in the act of adultery this means that she was literally caught in the act right according to the Jewish law uh, she could not have even been charged with this unless at least two eyewitnesses saw her doing it that means not coming out of the room not uh, in a compromising position not even lying on the bed with somebody they had to actually see her doing it now think about that how does that happen how do how do these people see that uh, it's kind of suspicious and that's why as we'll read we'll see that this was most likely a setup this was what we call entrapment right we'll talk more about why that was probably the case in just a minute but since this woman was caught in the very act of adultery uh, it's very likely that when they brought her in front of all these people into the temple right that she was not dressed 
In other words, they are publicly humiliating this woman. They bring her to the temple of all places. I mean, try to imagine what it would be like if someone brought a half-dressed woman, dragged her into our church right now. It would be disturbing. It would be wrong. It would, in fact, be cruel, right? And that's what they're doing to this woman. They burst in on her in the very act of adultery, and then they drag her through the streets and take her into the temple and publicly humiliate her. I mean, can you imagine, try to put yourself in her shoes and imagine the shame that this woman is experiencing at this moment, the embarrassment. You know, she just wants to melt away and disappear, I'm sure. These people, my point is this, they did not care about this woman at all. They are showing her no compassion whatsoever. But secondly, here's the other thing. Jesus is not being questioned about her guilt, right? Her guilt is obvious that's already been established she's guilty there's no question about that Jesus is not being asked about her guilt he's being asked about her penalty what should be her penalty for doing this and these scribes and these Pharisees they bring this woman and they incite the law of Moses now if you note takers this is Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22 Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, where the law of Moses states that adultery, which is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, any kind, that's punishable by execution. And the form of execution was you throw stones at them until they die. And so it says that they came to trap Jesus. This is actually a very good trap. I mean, kudos to these guys. They've really figured out a good one here. Now they've got Jesus. He's stuck between two issues. On the one hand, there's compassion for this woman. And on the other hand, there's justice for wrongdoing, right? Compassion and justice. How do these two ever meet, right? On one hand, there's compassion for the life of this woman, for the, the dignity of this woman. On the other hand, there's the divine law of Moses, and the two seem to be at odds with each other. Now, these guys did not like Jesus. It says in verse 4 that when they brought this woman to Jesus, they greeted him by addressing him as teacher. Right? In, uh, in Greek, this isn't the, in the Gospel of John doesn't use the word rabbi, it uses the word teacher, which is, you know, didaskala in Greek, and it means that, you know, it means someone who is a teacher. Now, the, the reason that's interesting is because that was their title, and, and that's what I want you to see. You know, one of the hard things about reading words on a page in black and white is that you can't hear the tone with which they said things, right? And that, that goes throughout the Bible. I mean, think back to Genesis, you know, the tone, Adam, where are you? What's the tone that you hear when you read that? Some people read that and they hear, Adam, where are you? You know, other people read it and they hear, Adam, where are you? So we, we don't know for sure the tone when we read it here in black and white, but I believe here, based on this, that you have to hear the tone of mockery in their voice. They come up to these men, who? The Pharisees, the scribes, the men who called themselves teachers, who carried this title, people called them teacher, and they come to Jesus to discredit him, and they call out to him mockingly, and they say, teacher, right? These guys, they view Jesus as a rogue, right? He, he doesn't have a degree from their seminary. He's not licensed to preach by their licensing authority. He's not ordained by them or approved by them. He presumes to teach on his own authority. So these guys come to Jesus and they're sarcastically speaking to him. They're saying, teacher, hey, how's it going? Hey, you know, since you're such a great teacher, 
we've got a we've got a tricky one here for you tell us what you give us some advice on this particular situation you know so you think you're a teacher eh well well what do you say about this so these guys know that Jesus is a preacher of compassion he's a teacher of grace and forgiveness and tenderness Jesus taught that the way to enter the kingdom of God was through grace and forgiveness and so they think they've got him because another time Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount he said that he was not against the law of Moses he said that the law of Moses is from God and not a jot or a tittle will pass away until it all is fulfilled so they think they've got him right these two things compassion and justice they are at odds with one another and they say we've got him it's a lose-lose situation for Jesus right because if uh, if Jesus says yes we we must obey the law of Moses and that means that this woman must be executed well then what what do they say they say aha everybody here's your Messiah here's this man who preaches grace and forgiveness this guy who says come to me all you who are heavy and or who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest they say yeah go to him all you who are burdened with your sin and he will execute you right but on the other hand if Jesus says no 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 we cannot execute this woman we need to show her compassion and grace then what are they going to say they're going to say aha he says he's from God but he's contradicting the law of Moses how can you even follow a guy who doesn't take the word of God seriously they think they finally found the perfect way to discredit Jesus and in their devilish ingenuity they have touched upon one of the great complexities of faith and that is this, if you preach compassion, you will relativize morality. But if you preach morality, you will crush people, right? This is one of the great complexities of faith, that if you preach compassion, you will relativize morality. But if you preach morality, then you will crush people, right? I was reading about this Indian woman um, she considers herself a guru and she's drawing big crowds in the United States and they've nicknamed her the hugging saint I don't know if you guys have heard about her but she's making the news every now and then anyway they call her the hugging saint and her teaching is all about compassion it's basically give somebody a hug that's like the whole point of her message right very positive and and very popular you know she had a gathering in San Francisco gathers hundreds and thousands of people right and all her message is is hey be nice to people and give somebody a hug cool I wish I could gather uh, tens of thousands of people by telling people to give hugs right but here's the thing if you preach positivity and being nice well then like this woman you have to relativize morality in other words if you essentially stand for nothing but positivity and you never say that anything is wrong because you're just trying to be nice to everybody then you stand for nothing right you have to relativize morality you can't ever say anybody's wrong because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings now the opposite end of the spectrum is that there are groups who are so worried about morality that they just crush people they crush people's spirits They're, they care more about what's right and wrong than they do about people right and and they're ready to throw anybody under the bus if they do something wrong and some of you might have even grown up in that kind of setting it's terrible and these two things right compassion and morality compassion and justice they seem to be at odds with one another it seems like you can have one or you can have the other but you can't have both 
So these guys think they've got Jesus. It's a perfect trap. There's no way out. But Jesus, he's going to foil their big scheme because this is no ordinary man that they're dealing with here. This is God come to us. So Jesus responds to them in a remarkable way. And in doing so, he tells us so much about who he is, and he reveals so much to us about the heart of God. First of all, here's what he does. First, Jesus disturbs the comfortable, and then he comforts the disturbed. So first, Jesus disturbs the comfortable, and then he comforts the disturbed. If you look at all of Jesus' teaching, you see this is something that he frequently did. This is something that God does throughout the Bible. He, he disturbs the comfortable. The person who says, I'm all right, he says, no, you're not. And the person who says, I'm not all right, he says, you will be all right, because I'm with you, right? He disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. So first, he disturbs the comfortable. The first thing that Jesus does is he kneels down and he starts writing with his finger in the dirt like he's ignoring them. Now this is interesting. Uh, what did he write? We don't know for sure. Uh, but here's the significance. These people were invoking the law of Moses. Now this happened on a Sabbath day and here's the interesting thing. According to their law, which was the Mishnah, which is kind of like a, a commentary, right, on the, um, it's kind of like an appendix to the law. It's like a commentary which explains the law. The Mishnah said that on the Sabbath day you were not allowed to write more than two letters. But if you drew in the dirt with your finger, then you could write as much as you want, right? So here's Jesus, and he knows the law. They're questioning him about the law. So he says, all right, you want to play this game? I can play this game. So he kneels down, and he starts writing in the dirt with his finger. Now, what is he writing? We don't know for sure. But there's one other thing I want to point out to you. They're invoking the law of Moses, right? The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I want you to think about this. Who wrote the Ten Commandments? In Exodus chapter 31, it tells us that the Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone. How? By the very finger of God. The finger of God writes the Ten Commandments. The same finger that wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery. Here, 2,000 years later, in the hand of Jesus, again, the finger of God, writing in the dust of the earth. Now, what did he write in the dirt that day? Well, whatever it was, it had a huge impact on these guys. I mean, it totally gave a 180 to the whole situation. Now, here's one more thing that we can know. The, the Greek word here is the word katograph or katagrapho. Now, now grapho obviously refers to writing, right? But this is a specific word, katagrapho, and here's what it means. It means to write against. That's what kata means, right? To write against someone. It has the intonation of writing something in order to bring an accusation against somebody. So whatever Jesus is writing, he's writing it against them. This is an accusation. He's bringing an implication of guilt against these people. Now, I personally believe that Jesus was writing out other parts of the law, right? They had come quoting this one part of the law. Jesus bends down. I believe that he's writing out other parts of the same law of Moses. And let me explain why. How was this woman caught in adultery? I, I mentioned a minute ago, this is a very suspicious scenario, and here's why, because the Jews knew that, you know, 
capital punishment was a very serious thing. It was something that could easily be abused. So what they did is they put up safeguards to prevent it from being common. They, they said, uh, you know, their writings, historians at the time say, on average, the, a person was put to death by capital punishment by execution about once every seven years. So this wasn't something that happened a lot. It was very infrequent. And the reason why is because they had all these safeguards against people taking advantage of the law of Moses and killing other people with it, right? So they said that it had to be at least two eyewitnesses and they were to be cross-examined. And in their cross-examination, which they did separately, those people's testimony had to match up completely or else the case was thrown out. And the, the history books even tell a story of one case where there was a similar situation, a woman caught in adultery, but the witnesses disagreed on the type of tree that the woman was caught under and so the case was thrown out. So it's very specific, very, a uh, lot of safeguards here. There had to be two eyewitnesses. Their testimony had to match up perfectly. In, in other words, this is what this means. In order for this woman to be caught the way that she was, she virtually had to be set up. This was basically entrapment. In other words, they had set up this whole scenario so they could catch this woman. Why? So they could take her before Jesus and trap him. The evidence for this, that this was a setup, where is the man? This is the, the problem. If two witnesses had seen this woman doing adultery in the very act, then they must have seen the man. And the Old Testament law, there, Deuteronomy uh, 22 and Leviticus, what did I say, 20? Yeah, uh, which one, 10? 10, verse 20, I think, yeah. 20, verse 10, all right. Anyway, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, here's, here's the point. It's absolutely clear that both the man and the woman are to be executed in such a case. There's no double standard. It's not just the woman who needs to be punished. It's both. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are very clear. They're very much against the sin of partiality, of injustice, right? There, there's never to be special treatment for the rich over the poor. There's never to be special treatment for men over women just based on gender. So, so the fact that these people come here and say, we saw her do it, Yet the man is not there. That proves that at the very least there is injustice here and prejudice. But it suggests that probably this is entrapment. Quite likely this was all a big setup that the man himself was even in on. Setting up this girl so the Pharisees could bust in and catch her in the act. So they could use her as a trap to trap Jesus in this no-win situation and discredit him. Not only that, but the law, like I said before, it demanded a trial. They didn't bring her to a trial. Instead, they drag her through the streets, publicly humiliate her, and bring her up to the temple of all places. And so Jesus stands there, or stands up after he's finished writing in the dirt, and he says this, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, Jesus is not saying what many people think that he's saying here, right? Some people think that this means you can never judge anybody unless you are without sin, right? Or in other words, only a sinless person has the right to punish anyone. Well, that's not what he's saying at all. And actually that would not have had an impact on these Pharisees at all. They would have said, well, nobody's perfect and we have to judge according to the law. And this is what the law says. So what is it about what he says here that, that's disturbing them? Jesus says essentially this, I know you. I see what you're doing. You are invoking the law of Moses against this woman, but you are breaking the law of Moses at the very same time. 
So by fact of that, you have just discredited yourself from bringing a case against this woman. In other words, you are discredited as a witness and you're discredited as an executioner. That's why they stand up and they just walk away because they realize they are discredited by the very law which they invoke from bringing a case against this woman. Jesus is saying, yes, you committed adultery. And yes, according to the law, she deserves to be punished. But what about the law against conspiracy? What about the law against partiality and injustice? The law calls for a trial, but you're not doing that. And what about yourselves? Are you guilty of this same thing? You see, that's why I believe that what Jesus was writing in the dirt that day, these accusations that he brought against these men, they were actually other laws of Moses, which these men were breaking at this very moment through this very act of bringing this woman here. That's why when Jesus says, okay, let's stone her, but the person who's without sin should cast, cast the first stone, they all walk away. Here's why, because Jesus is essentially saying, I am not de denying the law of Moses. I do not deny the law of Moses, but by the law of Moses, I deny that you are qualified to be witnesses or executioners. According to the very law which you invoke against this woman, you are disqualified from bringing a case against her or from executing her. They all walk away from oldest to youngest. The case had to be thrown out because they had broken the law by bringing the woman as they did. Jesus had beaten them at their own game. Now check this out, not only was Jesus showing mercy to this woman here, but Jesus was even showing mercy to the accusers. And how cool is this? Now think about this, these men, he's just told them, you guys are breaking the law. He could do it the right way and take them to court, but he allows them to just drop the whole thing and walk away. He says, we're gonna pretend this never happened, in other words. Now this is incredible. Jesus is not only showing mercy to the woman, he's showing mercy to the accusers. So the first thing that Jesus does, he disturbs the comfortable. He humbles the proud. The next thing Jesus does is that he comforts the disturbed. He deals gently with this woman who's humiliated and broken. He says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Now, now, to some of you, it might not seem very polite to, uh, for Jesus to call her woman, right? Uh, you know, guys, if you call your wife woman, well, that's a good way to get her to hate your guts and poison your orange juice, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe some of you guys are like, well, Jesus did it. If Jesus can call people woman, then I can too, right? Uh, but this word, right, it's translated into English as woman, but in that language, it's a term of endearment. This is the same word that Jesus used when he spoke to his own mother, right? Uh, this is the equivalent in English of the word ma'am, right? It's a term of honor. It's a term of respect. And this is actually an amazing thing that we see here about Jesus. When he deals with this woman who's been humiliated and disrespected by these so-called religious men, Jesus comes along and he treats her with dignity and treats her with respect and honor. And that tells us so much about the heart of God towards sinners, towards sinners like ourselves. Jesus says, ma'am, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, wait a second. Now, how can Jesus say this? I mean, he knows that she's guilty. We all know that she's guilty. 
In one sense, uh, Jesus has destroyed the case against her. He's removed the witnesses, so legally, there's no more case against her. Uh, she can't be executed according to the law because the eyewitnesses dropped their case. But that's not the only thing going on here. Obviously, there's more going on here than that. Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Jesus does not say, I declare you not guilty. Notice that. He doesn't say, I declare you not guilty. In fact, by saying, go and sin no more, essentially he's saying, you are guilty, right? You are guilty, but this is the key. He says, you're guilty, but I don't condemn you. And I want you to see that. You're guilty, but I don't condemn you. Essentially, right, this is the essence. This is the beauty of Christianity. This is the gospel. You are guilty, but I don't condemn you. Jesus says to the broken person, the contrite of spirit, the person who confesses that they're a sinner, who owns it, right? He says, he doesn't say, you're all good, right? You're not guilty, don't worry about it. No, he says, you are guilty, but I don't condemn you. Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ was condemned for you. That's the gospel. He was crucified for you so that you could be set free from condemnation. You are guilty, but he doesn't condemn you. He was crucified for you so you could be set free from condemnation. And it is in this way that God is both 100% just and 100% compassionate because Jesus Christ hung on the cross for you. That's where compassion and justice meet. Jesus Christ was condemned so you could be set free. And so Jesus says, go, you're free. There's no more condemnation for you. But at the same time, he says, sin no more. He says, I've set you free. I've saved you. But I demand change. I demand conversion. I demand change of heart and change of life. Jesus sets us free from condemnation because he took our condemnation upon himself on the cross so that we could be set free. And the freedom he gives us is freedom to change. That's the title of our message today. Freedom to change. What does that mean for you and me? Here's what it means. Number one, first of all, if you are a bruised, broken person, you need to turn to Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He won't crush you. He will give you grace. But here's the thing that you need to see. Whenever Jesus gives a word of grace, it always comes with a challenge to growth and obedience. Whenever Jesus gives a word of grace, it always comes with a challenge to growth and obedience. He doesn't just say, I don't condemn you. He also says, go and sin no more. Now think about this. This is a scenario for you, right? If you were to take in a child off the street and adopt that child into your family, right? Um, that would be free grace. That child hasn't done anything to deserve or merit that level of a gesture of love and compassion. That's free grace. By doing that, by taking that child in off the street or from wherever, you saved them from a life of hardship, right? You, you saved them by giving them a new name, a new identity, a new future, a new destiny. But once you bring that child into your family, 
Once you've done the basics, right, you've given them a roof over their head, you've given them some food to eat, some clothes to wear, how do you continue to love that child once you've brought them in by grace? Would you just say, you know, hey, I'll just give you some food and a place to sleep and, and some clothes, and you just let them go on living the lifestyle that they were living before they came into your home? Not going to school, hanging out on the streets, doing who knows what with who knows who until who knows when, right? No way, right? You would say no. You, you make that kid go to school. You, you make them come home at a decent hour. You, you demand that some things in their life change. We're going to do things differently. You introduce them to a new way of living. Why? Is it because you're a strict disciplinarian who hates that kid and, you know, you hate seeing other people have fun? No, on the contrary. You would do it, why? Because you love them and you want them to become someone great. You want them to become someone great. And you know that if they continue living the way that they're living, doing the things that they were doing, they're not going to become the person that you know they can be, the person you envision that they can be. Because you know that those things are just holding them back from being the great person which you know they can be. See, grace brings you in freely, and then it calls you to change your life. You see, that grace, it brings you in freely, and then it calls you to change so that you can become someone great. And that's true of Jesus. That anyone who comes to him, he will take you in freely. That's grace. But then there are things that he will ask you to do. And you know why? Because that's real love. That is real love. Real love doesn't say just, I don't care what you do. Real love doesn't say that. Real love says, go and sin no more. Change. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to her, go and sin no more. And if you don't sin anymore, then I won't condemn you. No, the order is very important. He says, I do not condemn you. Now, therefore, go and sin no more. And here's the point. Jesus motivates not with fear, not with the law. He motivates with grace and with love. He doesn't say to you, get that thing out of your life, and if you don't, then I'm going to let you have it, or I'm going to bail on you, and if you don't get that out of your life, then I'm out. No, he says, that sin in your life, that thing in your heart that's wrong, that needs to change, I died for that. I died for it. It's finished. Let it go. You're free from it. Why do you want that in your life anyway? Don't you see that it's holding you back? And my desire is for you to be something greater than this. Let go of that junk. It's tangling you up. It's holding you back. Now let me show you a new way of living. You're free. Go and sin no more. Here's something for you note takers. The Christian life is lived in between the phrases, neither do I condemn you, and go and sin no more. The Christian life is lived in between, neither do I condemn you, and go and sin no more. And that is precisely the sentiment of the very last verse that we read in this section. Verse 12, I'll read it again. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Who, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light of life. In our reading today, uh, we also read from John chapter 1. We read that in him, in Jesus, there is life. And that life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. 
He is the true light that has come into the world. And that's what Jesus is saying to this woman and to all those who are standing around observing this scenario, this situation. He says, go and sin no more, but rather follow me. Don't just go off anywhere and sin no more, but go and sin no more and follow me because I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will no longer stumble around in the darkness, but they will have the light of life. That is a new way of living. It's a quality of life which cannot be had apart from following Jesus. It's eternal life that can only be found in him. You know, one of the traditions at Advent is we light this Advent wreath. And each Sunday, the way it works is up until Christmas, we light one more candle on the wreath, symbolizing how Jesus has come into the world as the light of the world, dispelling the darkness, right? Bringing light into our souls and driving out the darkness. Now, each of these candles on the wreath actually has a name, which symbolizes one of the things which is an aspect of Advent. Uh, last week, we lit the first one, which is called the candle of hope. This week, we light the second one, which is called the candle of preparation. And, and I want you to think about that, preparation. Preparation is one of the main themes of Advent. It's a time of preparation. It's not, but here's the thing, it's not just about preparing yourself for the Christmas holiday. It's more than that. You see, Advent means the coming of the Lord, and it's during this time we remember that the Lord has come, but more than that, we remember that he is coming again. Advent is a time when we remember back to the fact that the Lord has come, and we look forward to the fact that the Lord is coming again. You know, Jesus says he has come as the light of the world. He has come into the world, dispelling the darkness. But here's the thing. Darkness is still present, is it not? It's a fact that we all live with every day. It's the reality of life on this earth in the times that we live in, that we live in this world. The light has come, but there's still darkness. There's still evil, right? There's still things which we look at and we collectively say it's not right, right? We look at there are things that we say it shouldn't be that way. There's hatred and, and selfishness and greed and disregard for others and hurt and pain. These are darkness, right? And Jesus, he's come as the light of the world, bringing the light of life, right? Love, joy, peace, hope, all these things. But yet the darkness is still present. How do we make sense of that? Well, here's how the Bible tells us to make sense of it. The Bible explains this with the metaphor of dawn. This is something that's found in, in some of the Old Testament and it's also found in the New Testament. This metaphor of dawn says that the coming of Jesus into the world on that first Christmas was akin to the advent of dawn. Now dawn is an interesting time of day, right? It's a time when the light breaks through the night and begins to shine. And dawn's interesting because dawn is that time when you're shifting from night into day, and from, from night and darkness into day and light. And at dawn, and this is the key, both darkness and light are present at the same time, right? It, it's not nighttime anymore. The night has been broken. And it's not yet day because it's still dark out. It's dawn. It's a special time. Neither of them are in full force. There's still darkness present there's still light neither of them are fully present at darkness or at dawn it's not as dark as it used to be but it's not as bright as it will be and this is the metaphor that the bible uses to describe where we are at in the history of the world right now spiritually jesus has come into the world as the light of the world but we still look forward to we still prepare ourselves we still long for the time when Jesus will come again and the full light of day will shine forth and the darkness will be no more forever amen 
The Bible calls Jesus the bright and morning star. You know what that means? This is a reference to dawn. The morning star is the last star that you can see during the dawn. What that means is that Jesus came on that first Christmas and his coming, his, the first advent, it was the beginning of the dawn. He came as the light of the world. He broke into the darkness of this world, into the darkness of our hearts. And so where we live right now is dawn. We're living at the dawn of a new day. We live in that in-between time when the light and the darkness are both present at the same time, but neither in full force yet. And the great hope that we have as Christians is not only that Jesus has come, but that he's coming again. When he comes again, the new day will dawn. And the day will be here in full force. The darkness will be a thing of the past forever. And so during this Advent season, we focus our hearts on Jesus, the light of the world who has come and who is coming again. He is the object of our hope. It's all about him. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the light of the world. And that, Lord, if we follow you, we will have the light of life. Lord, thank you for that quality of life that can only be found in you. Lord, thank you for the eternal life that can only be found in you. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who does not have the light of life in them. Lord, I pray that they would receive you today. That during this Advent season, they would say, yes, I want you, Jesus. And not only do I want you, but I want to follow you. I want to walk in the light of life. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you are coming back. And may we prepare ourselves for that day when we will stand before you and we will see you in all your glory face to face. Until that day, Lord, help us to reflect your glory here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.